Welcome back to Escaping Gilead. This is Paul. This is Caroline. And tonight we're talking about the premiere of season five of Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. June is back, Paul. June Osborne. Ms. Osborne, if you're nasty. <laughs> kind of. I mean, she took the whole episode to sort of get her legs under her. She certainly did. Let's just dive right in with June because there is so much going on with her in this episode. I feel like she runs the gamut of emotions. I mean, we start right back with, you know, exactly where we left with Fred having just been killed. This this uh, episode is heavy with flashbacks. We see lots of different moments with Fred's murder being like, I would say like number one in terms of like, let's keep reliving that and reminding the art audience, which is important because it's been a really long time since we've had handmaids on our screen. I noticed that too. That may be a perfectly good strategy for uh, a season premiere. You know, that that kind of, we've been away for a while. It takes a long time to make these shows. Well, just remember where we were. You know, I mean, they always have the, like, last week on Gilead. But, you know, we, we also like to remind the viewers like how visceral everything was when we left and June you know being all bloody and dealing with the bathtub scene which you made a really nice comment about what you noticed about those bathtub scenes well that she starts the episode rinsing off her bloody hands which if you check out that makeup um applied to her hands for the blood yeah you'll notice that her nail beds would indicate that her nails might have been like ripped up at a certain oh, point. God. Because by the end of the episode, where she's ending the episode in the same bathtub with Nicole, it's still purple, you yeah. know? Yeah. Which, after having seen the state of Fred's body, we know there was some clawing involved. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know. Pretty nasty, visceral, like belly achy kind of feeling when you take the visual cues together and yeah. what must have gone on. I want to note, though, that she starts to wash her hands, but then like thinks better of it. My take on that is that she actually doesn't want this moment to end. She has no desire to wash Fred's blood off of her hands or be sort of cleansed in this moment because she's still living it. You know, she's still in the celebratory mode of like, we just ripped this guy to pieces. It's hard to fully quantify like all of the possible emotions that she's living with right then. You're probably right that there is an element of wanting to keep that moment going. But this episode only lasts a day and she runs through, like you said, kind of elated about taking him down to, all right, but now I need to pay the, the, the consequences for that. It makes me think of like when you have like a like a special event like prom or wedding or something like that and people could change into completely different clothes, but they end up sitting around like in their tuxedos or in their dress, but they like, you know, they even maybe leave their hair up, but they put like a sweatshirt on or something. There's some part of it is like, I'm not ready to take this all off yet. I'm not ready to say this night was over. You know, I kind of am clinging to the last moments of it. And we get that all the way through this very desperate and painful exchange with Luke and Moira chasing her and being like, just just come back, just talk with us. That moment when she pulls out of the driveway and Luke is like, God, <laughs> you know, like yeah. she's leaving again. I was scared. I didn't exactly know where she was going. Did you think she was going to go meet up with the other executioners? I don't know what we call them. Well, it's worth noting that they must have been feeling very similar emotions because they were still beat up looking themselves. You know, they, isn't it very after prom, though, like going to like Denny's 
where you like sit around and eat breakfast in the morning rather than like take your outfits off and just call it a night and go about like your normal errands the next day? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was along for the ride as a TV watcher, less as a TV reviewer for this, because once they got to the diner, I began questioning myself as to, well, if they knew that they were all coming back to the diner, why did they ever just go home if none of them bothered to get cleaned up? If they knew that they were coming back after the morning yeah. after we all see them leaving, right? was it just to kind of spread out any possible chase type scenario? Maybe. I, I mean, but maybe even going back to our example of like prom or wedding or something, maybe it's like maybe they intended to go change clothes and they intended to go clean up. But as it turns out, they all kind of stayed in their party outfits, you know, and kind of stayed exactly how they were. All of the other women did feel like they were experiencing a lot of the same kinds of feeling, right? The uh, hungry as just like a base human need and perfectly fine to eat. Something about that scene where they were eating kind of reminded me of, of hunters eating their kill. It took a very long time with that scene. Like, I'm not someone who loves mouth sounds or enjoys a lot of clinking Still? Of silverware and all that kind of stuff. Like, I don't really like that. So for me, that eating scene was pretty long. But I think you're exactly right. I think there was something about it, like Vikings or something, after like pillaging a, a village, like sitting and having like a feast. There's something very celebratory, very warlike. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just, it's very, like they went to battle, you know, and then they came back like this. It did convey the message. I was I was interested to see how they were using music in this one. Um, Dolly because, Parton. Well, they played like three songs really quickly at the beginning. They played the dream song. They played the they played what I was saying like was like my Ocean's Eleven little like callback song, and they played this Dolly Parton song where they say this line in it basically that she, that she's getting happy really close together, and then I felt like the rest of the episode didn't have any music like that in the same way. Like we use it a bunch, 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 right, right, real close together, which to me, I'm just taking as like really heightened emotion. There's all this stuff that we're seeing and we're hearing and music's playing and it's just like, ah, like everything's happening, you know? The combination of the slow motion, you know, like the blood kind of peeling off of her fingers in the, in the water in the bathtub with the dream, you know, that's 50s era dream music is, is definitely a big, sensory clash i think you're supposed to get that happiness of the of the malt shop sort of idea when you hear a kind of, kind of that song but then you well, hear it see the blood coming off of the fingers but it's very memory laden also like that and she was having all the flashbacks you know it's, it's they use it a lot of times too when it's like oh yeah remember that special exciting celebratory time and instead it's like you know this awful gruesome chasing him through the woods kind of thing but we've seen that too we've seen them use that in Gilead whatnot, where they use like pop songs or they use oldie songs or whatever against like a really gruesome or very sterile or very weird, scary situation. I mean, I'm sure on purpose to have that complete like paradox of like, what? <laughs> like This right. is not a sweet moment at all. Right. But it is in its own way. I mean, what do you think? I mean, we, this is the fifth season, Paul, and June Osborne has killed Fred Waterford. With her bare hands. I mean, we cannot slide by that. <laughs> like, like, oh, yes. And then there was a killing. And it just was like a guy and some girl killed. Like, it is huge. We have been waiting all these seasons for her to get her revenge. Was it satisfying for you? Were I her? No, were you you? Were, were <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. I guess I'm one of those humans that includes 
something as final as death as an appropriate punishment or suitable outcome for certain crimes against other people. And enslaving a nation of people like Fred did, Mm -hmm. it fits the bill for me. I think the entire setup nailed it for me because the whole twist of, you know, them crossing over the Canadian-U.S. border, Nick, you know, picking them up, the whole thing thinking, oh, he's heading off to Gilead. Er, Not really. Like, the entire thing, we, of course, talked about this last season, but the entire twist and even the this aftermath that we're starting with in season five, it felt pretty delicious because it wasn't just like she was waiting around a corner in his house and, like, killed him. She essentially used governments you know, twisted things up in a way that she was using whole governments to capture him and create this scenario. That is some powerful manipulation on Miss Osborne. She is pretty amazing. But do you buy the exchange with the other handmaids in terms of, well, that was great, y'all. Peace out. Does she get to do that? Has she been building up to this point where she is the leader of these women? Like it or lump it? Like she hijacked Moira's uh, help, yeah, um, support, support group. group. Yeah. And was that all only to selfishly address her own need for, for vengeance or was she trying to create a movement here? I think this episode absolutely makes her question that because not only do we have the handmaids be like, okay, let's get out our hit list now. Like who's number two on the list? Who are we going to go get next? And what kind of government wild manipulation are we going to do to get this person across the border or this person over here what have you so yeah they obviously have the expectation that they're going to keep going on this killing spree and june i don't know if she's selfish exactly or if this was such a monumentous undertaking that it was just like the fact that she that it even happened that all the parts came together and he was officially dead I don't think she was ready to even take on their questions. You know, as soon as they start being like, okay, who's next? Like her brain's like, I mean, please, she barely has any dialogue for how many minutes of the beginning of the show because she's literally just kind of making these faces and having this sort of living on her. I don't even know what to call them. They're not even like micro expressions. They're just like all this angst and then sometimes pleasure and sometimes pain, just like washing across her face. So I think she just wasn't ready for their question. Mm. She wasn't expecting that question quite yet. And throughout this, I think as we talk about where other characters are in the story and what she's kind of absorbing, most especially Emily, which we're going to talk about, I think that she starts to be able to think bigger about like, okay, well then who is next on the list? And what kind of access do we have to these other people in Gilead? Like, do we have to send people back in or can we get them in different ways? Like, I think that question that the handmaids are so pissed at her about was just like the tip of the iceberg for like what this whole season might be about. That's a good way to look at it. I mean, just because you are the person that people decided to line up behind once you get in to whatever it is that you were were leading them to the promised land, once you get there. They're still going to have some questions for you. Well, and let's be fair. While they're trying to act like Fred was your individual monster and only your individual monster, that's not true. I mean, he was one of the founding people of Gilead. So each of them should have some amount of pleasure of killing him personally for creating this entire situation. 
as opposed to like going down to the next person on the list and it's just some wife that the you know yeah. this is a personal right. vendetta like that's not really this at the same level as killing fred and for june yes it was her direct commander but he was in charge of all of them and and you know inflicting pain on everyone so i think she again was kind of taken aback like wait, wait, wait we're not just going to be like and my neighbor was an asshole and they sort of like yeah yeah like right but like we got a, the biggest dog you know, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I was ready to start talking about the rest of these guys, you know, or women. Yeah. Yeah. But still, if you're if you're Vicky. Yeah, you're pissed, man. Yeah. You're pissed. That's super fair. I think that comes back to like there was a lack of communication once that support group <laughs> kind of ratcheted up and turned into this like we can go and we can rip him apart mob. yeah i would say that there just wasn't clear goals or anything you know it was just like kill fred i mean they even said everything tastes better when fred's dead you know like they each have a personal feel towards fred mm -hmm. so i mean i you know i am questioning about whether or not it was fair for her to expect them to be cool then or if she was just super short-sighted and not being like, oh, wait a minute, they're all going to have, obviously, their own commanders, their own wives, their own people. Yeah, that's my big question mark is, did she rev them up at support group for her own means without even listening to the fact that they were saying the whole time, they were, when they were going around their circle group, right? They were Absolutely. all mentioning. Who all, they would get. Yes, yes. It was all there for her. That's I mean, true. I guess I, I guess I can she, see both sides, but they were, I mean, they were feeling very empowered in that moment. Like, they were and slighted then when it wasn't like, okay, let's get out the big map and start drawing where everyone's going to start running to. Right. You don't want to hear, you know? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, that adrenaline needed somewhere to go and Vicky just decided to shoot it straight in the air. Right. <laughs> so that was exciting and all, but I think it was fair for her in that moment to need to like step back and be like, holy shit. Before we leave that diner, yeah, have we been to that diner before? I kind of thought that was the diner that she met Tuella in. I kind of thought so too. I just don't remember that decrepit Ferris wheel. I'd like to outside of it. Yeah, yeah. I'd I like agree. to. I'd like to congratulate the location scout for finding that because whenever you can work in a creepy, a, 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 right an abandoned ride. amusement right exactly, <laughs> you always build in a lot of production value for adding just a creep factor that you don't get just by picking like we said earlier the Denny's. Well, especially because there's something about an abandoned amusement park that gives you that it was all fun at one point in time, but things have turned. Yeah, yeah, you know? exactly. And that's basically what the vibe was in that diner. Like, well, that was fun in games, but now we're starting to get a little bit messy, right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so let's continue on with June because she has, I counted several other, you know, encounters that I think that we should actually just like talk about a little bit. We're not, you guys, we are not a recap show. So this isn't something where we're going to tell you every single thing that happened at all. So if you haven't watched and you happen to listen for the first 15 minutes here, please go watch, put us on pause and then come on back because we don't want to be spoiling everything for you. So please go take a look and see what you think. And if you like this podcast and the way that we do it, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to it on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe to this one or all of the Pod Clubhouse feeds. So, all right. This season, we had this bombshell before it started that Alexis Bledel, who played Emily, was not rejoining the show. And that threw me for a loop because... For a second, you might think like, okay, well, you know, whatever, anybody can leave at any given time. But when you really look back at how much Emily has played in and how much that June 
and Emily were like these, you know, duo. I mean, it really was daunting to think about like how in the world are they going to figure out how to explain her absence and how to kind of like fill in the blanks with her. What did you think about, first of all, that when you heard that Alexis Bledel was no longer coming, her reasoning being family, we all know now a couple weeks after there that she's getting divorced. You know, what did you think about the fact that she decided not to come back? I guess I have mixed feelings. It's not really my place to cast aspersions on her personal life. I mean, as a as a fan of the show, I like having her doing the best work she's ever done that I've ever seen anyway on this show. And I feel bad that that she's not going to be part of it because she's she's won Emmys. You know, she's she's proven or Golden Globes or something, but she's won recognition from her peers and from the industry saying we like you here doing this. And so to be missing out on them in the future is too bad. But I understand that these careers that feature, you know, 20 hour days or whatever that on for weeks on end are taxing for the people to the point where family life has to sometimes take precedence over their professional work. So it's more like probably personally concerning that everything in her personal life got to the point where she had to say, I have to put my professional life on hold. I was disappointed that Alexis Bledel wasn't coming back, but more I was wondering how are they going to deal with her character and this storyline? We need something. You know, we can't just have her not be mentioned again. So we have this entire scene with June talking to Emily's wife. We're given the reason why she's gone. Did you buy it that Emily would have taken off and gone back to Gilead and that she was going to hunt down Aunt Lydia? I mean... I guess they had to work with what they got, which was an actress that was unavailable. So portraying a sudden emotional break makes sense. I mean, character arc wise, we saw some build up to that. She was struggling last season, last season to kind of find her place in the world and figure out like where she fits in at all. Well, and but once once they had Fred on the ground, she was down to clown, if you will. So that buildup was earned through other comments, like through the support group and all that. But suddenly going to Gilead, I just wish I would have seen something about that. So it's being sort of described to us in a couple different ways. Some some said, you know, insane that she's back in Gilead. Some descriptors we heard were like brave, you know, that she was going to go back and like take this on. I mean, I think I lean more on the insane part, but I can understand where specifically for June, Emily's actions are going to become a huge nagging motivator for her because she still has Hannah back in Gilead. She has this need. Now, Emily, of course, I mean, she has Aunt Lydia to go. And I'm I'm saying is this is going back to the procedure on Emily and wanting to get revenge. You know, so for those of you who don't remember, you know, there was that terrible, horrible mutilation, mutilation, genital mutilation of Emily at Aunt Lydia's hands that Holy shit. I mean, that would be a motivator to want to go kill someone. So I get it. I really understand. I think it's clever the way that they're handling the writing for this, because now you have this character of Emily who is going to be unseen, but we can hear about her actions and we can hear about why she's going to go do it. And we can see June grappling with why she's doing it. We have a conversation with Moira and June about unseen Emily. Like the character is going to continue to have adventures without ever being on the screen. 
That's pretty cool. Yes. I hope that there is a door left open should Alexis's calendar clear up. Rather, Me too. Rather I, than an off-screen death or something. I could see that, though. Couldn't you? I mean, like, there had to be some conversation of give her some time. She's got to get through this divorce. She's got, like, a toddler. You know, let her get her feet back under her and let's see what happens, you know, when we're filming again next season. Even if she just comes on and does some guest spots, you know, here or there. We just need a couple scenes here or there. I think they could probably do a lot with it, especially given that they do rely on flashbacks. And so they can use things that happen and, you know, kind of plump up an episode without her having to film new scenes. Or even, I'm giving Caroline air quotes, create flashbacks, right? By having her in for a day, film something, but it's portrayed as a flashback or, you know, something like that. Some motivating scene that we didn't see play out earlier. What do you think about Emily's wife describing the time they had with Emily as like this bonus time. Like we never thought we'd see her again. She came back. We had this time with her. So now we feel lucky. So we're not even going to look at it like she came, then she headed back out. (laughs) We're going to look at it like we never thought she'd step foot in this house again. And then we had this amazing time with her that we never thought we'd get. So we're going to feel grateful for that. Is that too Pollyanna for you? Nah. I mean, it reminds me a lot of the cup was already broken mantra uh-huh. that we have in our own house. It's it's a more optimistic look at the glass half empty, glass half full kind of thing that some people equate with optimism, pessimism and in, in outlooks in, in life. But the idea is that if you enter a situation expecting it to not be everything it could be whatever the reason and our our example is this broken cup you know the cup that you lent somebody a child perhaps if you give it to them open heartedly <laughs> without expecting to ever receive the cup back or the cup comes back in pieces or whatever then you've entered the situation with the right outlook because if it does come back unharmed unharmed then then great what a delightful surprise (laughs) right but if it comes back in pieces then that's what you expected it to come back exactly so they okay they got both of those situations they got the cup back and then the cup broke after that right Mm. you're right she was the broken cup but that that they identified her as the broken cup like they already knew when she came back that she was they would be lucky. Right. This cup ain't holding water too good. Right. Well, they would be lucky if she could withstand everything that was going on, the change, everything. And and they did They did have a moment when, when we go over and talk to Moira about how Moira said, you know, it, you'd be surprised how many people choose to go back. And I feel like she was talking more as in because they were so brainwashed into what Gilead had to offer that they honestly wanted to go back to that life well they have shown us surprisingly women also and children especially children that do i don't know rationalize that kind of life and as as something that they want to get back to or just that it's so familiar you know it's the life they know you know like remember that little boy when it came to with moira and 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 he didn't want to eat pizza and yeah. chicken nuggets. Like he wanted to eat fresh vegetables and things that were familiar. And so even when things are so strange and you think, but pizza's so much better. Why you, why you don't want pizza? And it's like, because pizza's not home. Pizza's not where I live, you know? And so I don't want to be a part of that. Now, of course, the scenario with Emily, I mean, it's so much more horrific. We understand her motivation is absolutely revenge. You know, this is going to be, uh, you know, clearing the house, you know, of all demons. You know, we're going to get them all. But 
understand and I'm glad. And when we talked to Bruce Miller on our on our podcast last season and hopefully we'll get him on again this season, he explained to us how much research that they really do into the psychological effects of this this type of scenario and that how people respond in wanting to go back or even wanting to wear the same color clothes that they wore back in that horrible situation. Some of that stuff is sort of unconscious. They just act, they just are so used to it and some of it is like that's just more comfortable for me. One big portion of this when it comes to this idea of June turning herself in and how wild that seems on the surface. Yeah, you had an interesting read for this that I didn't get, but once you explained it to me, <laughs> made made narrative sense. I didn't even feel like we were I was like explaining it per se, right? But it feels like June is aching to live in a society where there are rules that are just i'm gonna call it yeah just and like kind of common sense right like no there's no like someone's better than another like nothing like that just you're right just equal rules and there are consequences when you break rules there's consequences when you hurt someone else and she acted on that need for justice in killing fred she needed for him to have consequences for the things that he did now people might say why would you go turn yourself in like that's bullshit well here's the thing she now viewed herself as someone who broke the rules. And in this thirst for there to be this justice that comes from, you know, if you turn yourself in and you say, I did something wrong. Well, there are there's a punishment for that. There are consequences. And so when <laughs> I mean, I got to say, Paul, that whole conversation between the Canadian official and her and she's explaining why she did things. Mm-hmm. I mean, Wow. What did you think when they were just like, yeah, we just, it's not our biz. It was a surprise to me. I think what they were trying to do with the way that they framed the whole scene with going through the whole police procedure, Mm. being led around by the cops. And Luke like begging her not to do it. Like, I mean, that was, that was ratcheting up the tension. Like he was like so freaked out. So they were setting us up to look at it like, like situations we've seen elsewhere. So then I wonder if it's meant to combine with, say, Tuello's reaction later, where he congratulates her kind of unofficially. Right. If all these things, like you're saying, will gel into, well, people are actually kind of tacitly okay with taking these people out. You just got to kind of do it the right way and nothing's going to happen to you. But it's tricky because, because I really do think that it speaks to the needs of human beings to live in a society that makes sense. We have these rules. We follow these rules. If you don't follow the rules, there are consequences that we all agree are fair. Okay, they're not insane. We don't cut anything off your body. But it's fair. But you do have to have some amount of consequences if you do stuff that's outside of what what our values are. Well, there's a funny relationship between justice and retribution that people don't want to recognize openly. The two can actually kind of look very similar in the way that they play out to people. But if you've been wronged and then you find out that the person that wronged you is in jail for the next 25 years, is that justice per se? Or do you feel good in the sense that the person that did something to you now has to spend 25 years in jail? I think for me, I usually use the line of like, did the person hurt you like emotionally, physically, psychologically, like hurt you, right? Yeah. Versus hurt your estate, right? Like, <laughs> like did they commit fraud 
And so that created a shitty paper trail problem for you. Did they steal money that, you know, you had insurance and you ended up getting the car back or whatever, you know, like, like, they, like for that stuff, that's justice, right? Like you did something wrong. You go now pay the pay this time in jail. And that's like equal, right? If you rape someone, if you, you know, hurt a child, if you if you do these terrible acts, those things always come for me with some sense of retribution because there's this intangible element of like you took someone's like spirit you took something from them you injured them in a way that there has to be consequences beyond you scratched my car or you stole money out of my bank account like there has to be consequences that feel like i somehow injured you more deeply than simply you know, repaying the money or whatever. And this is where you get situations like like a prisoner exchange, mm-hmm. not quite scratching that itch. Right. Because that's kind of it's kind of pragmatic, right? Like it's just this like it's like I said, your your car gets stolen, but it's insured so you get the money back. It's very transactional, right? You get Fred, we get these twenty two people, very transactional. But they wanted carnage, you know, they mm-hmm. they needed the feeling that he was as hurt as he had hurt other people and and they weren't they couldn't stand for anything else all of that i think is what is coming to the table for why june would want to turn herself in because she wants to believe in the system she wants to believe in this society that she now lives in that you have to live within the rules you cannot go around killing people you cannot go around hurting people because if she can, that means someone can hurt her. It's like, how can I feel safe if I can go rip this guy's body apart and you don't have a problem with it? Then what's going to happen when someone does it to me? I need to live somewhere where there are consequences for hurting someone. I, however, believe that will be a passing fancy for her emotionally in terms of needing this society to punish her. I think she's going to move on to find a way to use that. I agree. And I think even going through this process is helping her just analyze that need a little bit, you know, like because she was so thrown. I mean, when they (laughs) have that extra moment where they say you actually have a fine for transporting the biological material, a.k.a. cutting off someone's finger and mailing it, it's $88 and BT dubs you can pay online. That's that's so right. comically. We take PayPal, Venmo. Uh. <laughs> it's so comically insignificant. Yeah. For cutting someone's finger off and mailing it, you can like dumb that down to transporting biological material. Like, oh my god, you want to think that there's bigger consequences for cutting my finger off and mailing it to someone else than eighty eight dollars that you can pay online? So you can see where I think a little bit maybe there's even some poking fun at like our system and how wild it can be like that. Certainly we have all lived through a variety of laws and changes even in the last couple of years that make your head hurt in terms of like, you're like, that just doesn't make sense. Lots of situations get in the news where a person is is accused or even recognized for having committed a host of crimes. However, the only one that they can prove is this really rinky-dink crime. And that's the one they get prosecuted on. I mean, Al Capone, for crying out loud. It's the same kind of idea. I appreciate what you're saying. That's kind of it. But they're not denying any of their crimes, Paul. They are not saying, oh, we only got evidence on one. No, they're saying, we know you did it. We know you did all of these. 
And the only thing we're going to have a consequence for is the $88 fine. The That's fine. different. That's different than catching you on only one thing. They get it and they accept that she did all the things, but they don't care. It would be difficult to look at the government you're living under after you come out of somewhere like Gilead where the consequences are so extreme and the the persecution and the anything goes like whoever's in power can do anything they want and there just are no consequences to things. I can see where you have an extreme need to see things follow a predictable, logical and like value system you can accept kind of path, you know? Mm -hmm. And so she needs to feel like this is what she's living in. Now, I mean, it was like almost comic relief, right? To have this $88 fine and the whole thing, which who would think that's how a turning yourself in for killing Fred Waterford by June Osborne. Like who thought this is how that was ever going to fly? Like what? Wow. That, that was wild. I wonder like behind the scenes, you know, Nick kind of set this whole situation up. Yeah. And so he must have, must have made it happen in an unprosecutable area. We're like, well, that's Gil- what they said. It's in no man's land. Right. But Begiliad uh, guardians and eyes weren't going to be snooping around the woods because they don't, they can't go there w- <laughs> without have, having their presence there contested. The same for Canadian forces. Right. So very cool. Very cool that this little area, it reminds me very much of Yellowstone, right? Where there's that like one area, they call it the train station. There's this one station. <laughs> right. There's this one station. There's just one area of the United States that like, somehow doesn't exactly have anybody watching it. (laughs) Like like any county sheriff or anything. And so those places exist. That's a real concept. I mean, we see it on Yellowstone and and that was well-researched by our fellow podcasters and stuff that like, yeah, that's a thing. So you mentioned to over there for a second about how, you know, he kind of lets you know, like, hey, this was in this like contested land. And so there's really no one to prosecute the situation. And he obviously encourages her. You know, he, he acknowledges the postcard, you know, with the don't yeah. let the bastards grind you down. And, and he, you know, what I appreciated about that is that he tells her you did something that needed to be done, but that comes with a cost. And I think that he was trying to tell her like, hey, I get that you're trying to turn yourself in and you're trying to make the government punish you. But the reality is there's things that happen that have to happen that take a toll on your own soul that nobody needs to punish you. It's like that retribution conversation. Like you want to take something away from that person because that person took something away from the victim. Yeah. It already happened to you, June. You've already been hurt. You know, it's it's already been taken from your soul, either by Fred or simply by your own mind, your own ethics that you know you did something to someone that you didn't want to do, that you don't, you know it's not right. But it had to happen because of the extreme danger that all these other people are, are put in because Fred's alive. I think it was really good to acknowledge that, that it's not always this higher governmental faction that creates everybody's, you know, sort of punishments, if you will. So almost like if, if some jurisdictional governmental body has to punish you, right, mm-hmm. then maybe you don't have to be as hard on yourself about it. Right. That's a little like what she was trying to do. Right. Like she was trying to be like someone slap me around because I did something wrong. <laughs> right. Because it would feel good. Right. Like sort of justified. How about we've seen. And yeah. But like think about. um, Oh, my gosh. What is the the Da Vinci Code? 
Think about the self-flagellation business, right? Like there's some sense of like this external thing can hurt you or you can hurt yourself, right? You can punish your own self. And that can be even worse than like this other power hurting you. Interesting take. And I have no idea if it's what Bruce Miller was looking for. I don't know if this is exactly what the story is at this point, but this is how I'm taking it. Tuella was trying to say, look, man, I know you're trying to hold yourself accountable through the court system, but BT dubs, your brain, your heart, your psyche, your inner, you know, voices are going to hold you accountable for the rest of your life. You're going to have nightmares about this and you're going to feel like, did I do the right thing forever? (laughs) So there's no amount of fines or things we can do to you. That's the cost of doing this. That conversation with Tuello happens around the time that she's having the conversation with Moira in the kitchen. Yeah. How do you feel about Moira's take on June post Fred killing and uh, and really her interactions with Nicole? Man, if I'm Moira, I think I probably look like a cartoon character trying to figure out left from right. June has just basically shown up at the house and been a whirlwind ever since. And you've been taking care of her kid for the past period of time. Would you toss that kid into a whirlwind and say, all right, take, yeah. take care of it? Especially something like bath time. I think there's something about that that is it needs to be so... supervised with the, with the whirlwind. And especially because she kind of had this spaced out look on her face when Moira and Luke were trying to talk to her when she ran off, you know? Yes. That you could easily see where she might she might not even be doing anything at all to the baby. You know, the baby's just swimming around in the tub and she just starts staring at the wall you know, and kind of spaces out to flashbacks and all the things that happen. And the baby just goes under the water. Simple as that. You know, all the way to she could be like, we have no future. and Like hold the baby under the water. You know, like there's all of that. I was happy that they had a true communication moment where she's like, I'm scared of you. And June's like, yeah, I'm scared of myself, you know, and they and they were able to do that without playing around, without like pussyfooting around the situation. They were just like, I'm scared of you. You don't seem stable enough. And June accepted that. Like, yeah, I'm not stable enough. And I'm scared of me, too. So let's, like, do this together. You guys don't go do bath. Cool. You know, like, let's not put me in a fragile situation, you know, because I'm not feeling good about well, it this. Well, it makes you glad for Moira being who Moira is. Moira has been through very hard things. And has done a lot of the work within the support group and her own inner work to try to heal some of those things and not be so raw. So she can be scared of what june is going to do but in terms of fearing speaking to june saying things like that moira can stand pretty tall i think that knowing their really wonderful deep foundation of friendship being able to say i'm scared of you and two seconds later being able to say i love you and being able to say i love you too and everybody being absolutely honest in that moment that i can love you i can be scared of you And I can also say, I don't think you should hang out with the baby right now. And nobody's feelings have to get hurt. And everybody understands where they stand. And we can move forward. That's good, healthy business there. I mean, I approve of that message between the two of them, right? Yeah. I think it's a really good message, again, for if the writers are trying to get get anything across to us viewers. If you are somebody who's going through tough times, it's okay to just say it. And it's also okay if you're the person receiving that message to say, I see you going through hard times. I, you know, let's have different boundaries right now. And when you're feeling better, we can like do something different, which is what happens at the end. You know, Moira and Luke invite her to come and be a part of bath time. And she actually is the key to calming the baby. 
Now, I gotta say, Paul, before we leave June's storyline, I gotta say, one of the moments of this episode that was so small and so easy to overlook, like if you were folding laundry and you walked into the other room to like go get something, if you did whatever and you're just listening, you might have super missed this scene because it's only like maybe two minutes long. When Nick is headed back home and we see Nick's wife. Yeah. And she is apparently very informed. Yeah. She's not living in the dark. Right. She is at least somewhat informed. She 100% knows what happened with Fred. She knows that June killed him. And she even has this like well wishes moment of like, I hope June can move on now because this this nasty situation's over. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Talk about some healthy communication. Like Nick just tells his wife this stuff and she's cool and they can like talk. This is very not Gilead. This is very not commander and wife. So super impressed about these two. I don't know what it means in terms of like, is she going to turn out to be like a pretty gigantic June foil here? I didn't get a full read on her or their real relationship because it was so short. Well, and they seemed very partnery and that maybe perhaps if she's so informed, then he must have laid down some amount of truth at the beginning that he has a pretty serious case of unfinished business with June that he's not going to leave unresolved. And she's not blowing any whistles, though. Yeah. The fact that, you know, Nick is out there killing Fred Waterford. I mean, what? Perhaps she is feeling lucky to be placed as as his wife. You know, he's an up-and-coming commander, I don't know, but she looks older than him. You know, maybe this is something that she's willing to work with. I'm very interested and I know we're obviously going to see more of Nick and his wife, but I just, there's something about the two of them that feel like I can't quite, you're right, get a read on it. Like, is she going to turn out to be a problem? Because I think June is going to continue to want to have some relationship with Nick. And when he says, when Nick's wife says, well, I hope this like allows June to like cool the fuck out. To me, that means and we don't need to be talking to June no more. <laughs> That's kind of what I got from that too. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it was all it's just like, uh, I don't know about that. I think you're still gonna have some problems there. But yeah, I there was a lot going on there. Let's talk about the last remaining Waterford in ICC custody. Again, always with her. I can never fully read her in terms of is she kind of emotionally in? Is she emotionally out? Is she really really a Gilead true believer or is she just taking advantage of situations as they present themselves to her? We start off with her being told that Fred's dead, right? Yeah. No big emotional outburst. No big screaming on the floor. No, why? Why, God? Why you have to take him? None of that. We have some pretty serious circumstances being explained to her that we've got to move you quick because like we don't know if there's like an angry mob getting ready to come scratch your body apart, right? So mm-hmm. we got to get out of here. And Tuello Smart uses the always powerful you and your baby, your unborn baby. If we don't move that unborn baby, aka your body, elsewhere, that unborn baby could be injured. I mean, come on, that's it. Now here's the thing: when they go into that elevator and she is like crying. Not huge tears or anything, but glassy-eyed, all this biz. She's having her memories of Fred and her dancing. I thought for a hot second we might get a whisper of a smile. A micro, this might be good for me 
face mm-hmm, right. that comes across. Now, I did not see that. I will rewatch. I invite our listeners to see. Did you see any little bit of like, excellent? <laughs> I'm glad Fred's dead. I don't know. To your question about what's up with Serena and her beliefs, I 100% believe that nature abhors a vacuum. Yeah. And the second that that leadership position is now vacant, I think Serena is like, how can I play this to my advantage? If I can have this situation make me become the most powerful because I am now this grieving widow, what do I stand to gain? Now, here's the two scenarios that Tuello basically lays out for her. I'm going to put these choices to you, Paul. Lay it on me. Here you are, Serena, right? You're pregnant, unborn baby. You can live in Toronto. You would be a refugee like everyone else. You'd have the resources of everyone else. You would be protected, you know, for the most part. We do know that June's around. She's also in Canada. She's also about, right? She's loose. She's out and about. And yeah, yeah, and is in no way, uh, you know, really like in any type of custody or we're not watching her. She's barely held accountable for anything she does. (laughs) She's not. She's 100% (laughs) not held accountable. So there's that situation. She may blow off that fine for all we know. She probably will, right? She probably, she's going to go to collections on that $88. (laughs) But here's the thing. There's no status. There's no nothing. But you will live like a quiet life, okay? Yeah. In theory, if June can keep her distance. Or, now this is what Serena creates, go back to Gilead. You've got this powerful Waterford name. You could be respected. You could be looked at as what a sacrifice you've made to have gone to Canada to try to deal with this situation. And then, oh my God, look what's happened. You know, Fred gets killed. Oh my God. But miraculously, you and the unborn boy baby can be born in Gilead and be like our crown prince, right? You think that's what's at stake? I think that's what Serena thinks at stake. And what but she created the whole scenario of tricking Fred into Canadian... I know. This is, but these are the two choices. Do you stay in Canada? Do you go back to Gilead and, like, quote, bury your husband and have this big old Waterford pity party with Gilead? Or do you stay in Canada and say, like, I am distancing myself from this scandal? Well, I think she's going to roll the dice and see if she can push this Gilead thing. I don't know if that means somehow inheriting some measure of Fred's former power. I don't see how that's possible I think she at can, all. I think she can garner it through favor and through playing the widow card. I don't think they will ever crown her as anything. Being a woman in Gilead is not going to do that. But... Could she live in the fanciest house? Could she have the best things? Could everyone have to bow down to her? And could her child end up leading them all in a couple decades? Yeah, that could absolutely happen. Sort of like a queen regent, mm-hmm. Cersei, while her children are on the throne. She's still got pretty nice stuff. Exactly. So there's a draw there. Now, here's the thing. But when you play with that much fire... You could be burned, right? So you're over here. It's exciting. You could live this flashy life over in Gilead where you are like doing all the things, right? But also they could just chop your head off or mutilate you in some other weird way, cut off more fingers. She has nine fingers left. They could do a whole bunch of things to you. So, I mean, and they're not afraid to do that. You've got the little wooden finger, metal finger thing to prove it. 
So would you possibly take that gamble? Or are you okay with like just wearing your, you know, old Navy clothes and taking your kid to the park and going to like public school and you're just one of the people who work for normal? Maybe maybe little Freddie is like a, you know, works at the local coffee shop or something. The, like the anything Tim Hortons. Could, anything could happen, right? they're in Canada. Timmy's, right? right. He works at Timmy's. Yep. It could happen. So what, I mean, what do you do? Safe and quiet or like go for gold? I think the scene at the end with the sympathizers outside of the county morgue emboldened this idea, like you're saying, like if she can just get back into Gilead, then there may be something there for her. They don't necessarily know that she's the one that tricked oh, no. Fred. I don't, they don't know nothing. Into And she's going to deny, deny, deny if anything comes out. She'll be like, I don't know what you're talking about. They chained me to a bed. I never even got to speak to anyone. Not that she was wearing her yoga clothes, doing her little exercises. <laughs> she's not going to talk about that. You know, she's going to talk about how bad they hurt her and everything, you know. I agree with you that walking down the reception line of people with the candles, whispering, literally whispering in her ear what a hot shit she is. Propel that ego straight to Gilead, please. I don't think she has any desire to go be Joe Schmo just hanging out in her apartment. No. Like, she, this is not the life for her. She's like, no, no. I, she needs to be extra at all costs. This is where she's so hard to read for me because, like, I'm sure seeing her, her husband, even though she pretty much hated his guts seeing him all ripped up like that i'm sure stirred up emotions but like we saw the flashback was from a pretty long time ago after the formation of gilead yes but still a pretty good day for them being the featured pair on the dance floor amongst all the other commanders and their wives she was like i was on dancing with the stars gilead edition <laughs> <laughs> with guest host Commander Smith and Commander Joe. She's like, I can't go back to dancing jazzercise at the local curves. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just can't see her doing that, right? She is go big or go home. And she don't want to go home, meaning her apartment. She wants to go big in Gilead. So that's where I see everything happening with Serena. I mean, that's the biz with her. Politically, now that Fred is dead... I don't know that she's so very valuable for the former or I mean the the minuscule American government to make any kind of hassle about hanging on to her. You know, no, she doesn't think, really carry any political clout. She's already pulling the widow card. She's already saying I want to take my husband home. I need to bury him on our soil. But but you see you cannot Take that away from me. Well, there's there's that. I mean, the initial the initial feeling of Tuelos is like I I don't know how to arrange that. Right. But when you think about it, like she doesn't really have state secrets, and sure she does well, but not not as verifiable as a former commander. Like, uh, girls got secrets. She was part of founding the whole thing. Kinda. I mean, kinda. yeah. She she helped write the documents that the men ratified in a room without her. Yeah, sure. I mean, she She's wasn't in the valuable. room. It just doesn't, it, it, she, it, we know as It's about viewers, the room where it happened. Listen, we know how valuable she is as the audience and how dangerous she is as the audience. It is fair to say that the governments do not know what she knows and do not know how much she's played into this and how much she's whispered in Fred's ear and everyone else is there, you know? I'm just saying, 
when Tuello calls his boss and says she wants to take the body back to uh, Gilead. I think so, because even if she is a major flight risk, they're going to say it's costing us you and like two or three other marshals, plus the facility space that she's taking up, plus the the life that we want. You know what they're going to say? It would be rude not to let her take the (laughs) Sorry. Here's your here's yeah. your uh, blue dress back. Exactly. They're not gonna, they're not going to make her not be able to take the the body back. That's how Canadians say sorry. I know. In case you're wondering, <laughs> listener, sorry. They, that's they're definitely they're... not going to not let her take the body back. So she's a hundred percent going to do that. Now, Paul, that pretty much is what happens in this episode. Quite a bit, I think. As much as I know, on first watch, we were a little bit like, "Wow, okay, I'm not so sure how much happened." I think actually quite a bit happened, and has ni- nicely set us up. For the start of this season, we have the, this looming question of is going back to Gilead to do more there insane or brave? That's on the table now. We And we already know one of our beloved characters has taken this as her route, right, Emily? Yeah. It's going to be in the back of June's brain. Now, we also have this concept of sometimes things have to get done and there's a personal cost to that. But some things have to get done. Hard, has told us. bad things. Bad, bad, hard have things. To, have to feed their, the greater good. Now, I am going to ask you about this little tidbit that Tuello just sprinkles in there. He tells June that Serena Joy is scared of her. And also, I think you scared Gilead. But then he says, that's not good. That's not a good thing. How do you think... An entire nation being scared of you plays out. We always assume that Gilead is sort of picking up the pieces of whatever was left when they took over America and tried to rebuild it as best they could with whatever collaborators they had in place. But that doesn't mean that they had full use of, say, all military or espionage assets when they did so. But now we're several years on into Gilead's existence. So could they activate someone across country boundaries to come after her? Sure. I mean, and or get her. Why would they? Why? Why? I think it'd be more thrilling to them not to kill her, but to bring her on back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they want everyone alive. There's no alive or dead. They want, they want you alive, definitely. If there's that threat then that changes the idea of, is it insane to go back to Gilead or brave to go back to Gilead? If you're actively being hunted in Canada, there's actually a pretty good argument for taking the fight to them rather than sit in your home and be scared every day. Like if you could plot your own course and make your own plan and do your own damage on your own terms versus sitting around and waiting for someone to blow up your car or come around the corner and cut your head off, you know, or just like you said, kidnap you out of the woods and drag you back to Gilead and give you a new commander. I don't know. There's a pretty good argument for you want to control your own destiny on this one and just freaking head north or in this case, head south, I suppose. (laughs) That's a good point. I mean, but if you're in Canada, you can let your guard down every so often. But if you go back to Gilead, you've got to be like, Commando. See, but you say you can let your guard down. Why do you think you can let your guard down? Because you have at least Luke and and Moira there Uh, with you. I think Luke was there with you in the woods, Paul. And I think Moira was with you at other points. And guess what? Bad shit still found you. So I don't know. I think if you 
start thinking about how the fact that Serena and Gilead are scared of you and being scared can be very dangerous. And this is this is what Tuello is now like just sprinkling like fairy dust over your dreams. I feel like uh, this is definitely something that is going to start eating you alive. So I look forward to the rest of the season because I think that all of these little nuggets that we just talked about are 100% well planted here for us to see how this is all going to grow. This is Caroline. And this is Paul. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.